Good morning, Horizon. It's great to be with you on a cold, you're in the midst of this heavy snowstorm that we got, right? I'm amazed that you all made it out through the, uh, through the blizzard. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's what snowstorms are now. Um, pray with me as we continue in worship. Lord God, thank you so much for the chance to be together as a church family. I thank you so much for the, the worship this morning, the chance to be just ushered into your presence. Lord, I just pray that you would just be really clear with who you are this morning, that you would make yourself known to us in just powerful ways. Lord, I pray that anything that's of me would be quickly forgotten and that anything that's of you would stick to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been doing a series on the heart of Jeremiah, and we have been looking at both Jeremiah the person and Jeremiah the book, and a little recap on who Jeremiah the person is. He was known as the weeping prophet. I know he uh, lived through a lot of hardships. He watched the fall of Jerusalem and his people being carried off into captivity. Um, he wrote the book of Lamentations, so he, you know, he, he had a, carried a lot of sadness and a lot of burden in his life, but he started his ministry as a young man. I think we kind of picture Jeremiah with the, the big beard and kind of being old, and he was that at the end of his life. But for most of his ministry, he was a young man fighting this fight to try to turn the hearts of his people back to the Lord, and they were, through most of it, just unable or unwilling to listen to him. He prophesied about the fall of the Jer- Jerusalem and Judah, and both things happened in his lifetime. And he did that over the course of three kingdoms. He tried three different like uh, kings and their, all of their administrations, he tried to get them to turn the nation back, and all three ignored him in very dramatic ways. Um, you know, we, in week one, we talked about a heart that had strayed, how the people's hearts had gone far from the Lord, and how they had stopped to resemble the people of God at all, and instead they looked just like the nations around them. And then Mark last week did a great job talking about God's heart for his people, how even though the people's hearts had strayed and gone far from the Lord, the Lord's heart had stayed fixed on loving his people. And these are some of the things that Mark brought up, that God's heart breaks over our sin because of the harm that it causes us and others. He isn't grieved over sin for no reason. It, it, it grieves him to see us do damage to ourselves and to each other. He has a father's heart for us. And as a father, he calls us to repentance because he wants us to be obedient because he knows what's best for us. And he also said that God disciplines us, not with punishment, but with training in righteousness. And God promises restoration one day, and we're kind of getting into what this restoration looks like, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. God has a heart for redemption. So this is like the second part of God's heart. Not only does he still long for us and grieve for us and love us and want us to have his heart for the world, but he has this desire to bring us back to what we were meant to be, to redeem us from what we have become and back to what we were meant to be. And, you know, where we left the people of Israel, they are... You know, they were disobedient despite warnings. They had been carried off into captivity. They were living in a foreign nation. And the, but the Lord never stopped loving them and calling them to repentance. And the message that Mark had last week was very much his message to them as they were in captivity is that he still loved them. He longed for them. He wanted their hearts to return to him. You know, but they're still in captivity. There's still a practical side to this, that they are living in a foreign nation now. They've lost their homeland. They've lost their nation. They've lost their independence But God is not content to leave them in that situation. He's not okay with them just being there forever. So he has a plan to redeem them and to bring them back. You know, um, I think redemptive stories are just some of the the most common but most moving stories in our culture. We're so drawn to redemption as a culture. I don't know if you realize this or not. We are very drawn to redemption. 
I, we love seeing things restored back to, and this goes, I mean, HGTV has built a whole business empire off of restoring things, right? Like we love seeing like old houses that are brought back to like the potential that they once had. And why is that? Because, well, there was something kind of unique and cool about something that existed before, and it's sad to watch it fall into decay, and it's sad to see it bulldozed over and have like kind of like a mini mart put there, right? Like we love to see things that are kind of rebuilt to their original glory and that kind of resemble what they were meant to be from the very beginning. And we like this with even old furniture. My wife is really great at restoring old furniture, and it's kind of wild to see some piece of junk, basically, that is turned back to what it could possibly be. We love to see this with cars. Like, you know, the old cars have just a different feel. I got to go to Cuba a few years ago, and just driving around and seeing all the cars, it just has a nostalgic kind of feel to watch these old cars that have been restored and loved and cared for in such powerful ways. And on, even T-shirts can be turned into quilts, right? Like, and like, yeah, that's a funny thing. But it keeps the nostalgia and the story. I had the hardest time letting go of my T-shirts because they all had a story to them. Right? They're stupid. They're terrible. But, but people like, want to recapture them and rebrand them and still hold on to those memories. We have this desire to kind of like redeem things that are decaying. And it's just natural about who we are as people. And this is true in all of, our, all of the stories that we tell, like the, the stories that we're drawn to, the movies and the books. I mean, it's a, you know, the new Star Wars poster, but if you think about Star Wars as a franchise, how much of it is just about redemption? It's just about redemption. A young girl who doesn't know her family heritage, who's on her own without family, finds a family, finds a mission, saves people, right? There's like, I mean, Darth Vader, the most famous one, finds redemption in the end by giving his life for his son. It's, I mean, all these stories that we have, I mean, a smuggler that finds purpose after kind of being discounted for so long. How much of that story is just redemptive story, redemptive arc, redemptive arc? And this is true of so many of the, the stories that we tell in our culture. A guy who had been wandered off from his original purpose and comes back to be king, right? A, a princess who was turned into a swan but now becomes a princess. How many, I was thinking about this, how many like Disney movies or movies in general just about princes and princesses being turned into animals? I was like, frog prince, like swan princess, the beast. It's like, what, what is it? Like, would we have a fear of being turned into animals at some point? I don't know. But I mean, like all these restoration projects, right? And real stories. We're drawn to real human stories of people who have overcome, who have been to the bottom and have found redemption in the end. And even real people, they're made a movie about Harriet Tubman because not only does she find freedom, and she had, had her, humanity, her, her humanity stripped away, but she got it back, found freedom, and then helped others find it. And these stories move us as a culture. They move us in deep and powerful and profound ways to know that people who have been down can come back up, can rise again to what they were meant to be. And why are we so drawn to these redemptive stories? Well, all great stories at their core are about redemption. I've heard someone say this once, and I really believe that. All great stories at their core are about redemption. And I think that's because God's great story is about redemption, and all of our great stories are really just echoes of the great story that we all live in. We live in the great story, which is one being told of how God redeems us from things, and our stories just echo. We long for redemptive stories because it's in our DNA to long for it. We all desire and need to believe that we are capable of being redeemed. We need to believe that because it's hardwired into us. You know, so why is God all about redemption? It makes sense that we would be all about redemption. We're all stand in need of redemption. Well, maybe for some of the same reasons that he loves to restore the original beauty. He created a world and said it is good and it is beautiful. And he poured his heart and his soul into this creation and it went bad. 
And he didn't want to just discard it and burn it to the ground and start over. He wanted to see his original potential brought back to life. And deeper than that, I mean, ultimately, he loves his creation. He loves us intimately. He doesn't want to start it all over with something new. He wants you and he wants me. He wants us to come back to what we were meant to be. You know, I, um, I have a dog named Finnegan. I'm about to be a dad in like, what, three and a half weeks? It's coming fast. So everybody always uses parent. I, I, all my life I've sat under like parents who were preachers that talked about their kids and I've never had any great kid stories. So I've always told dog stories. I'm like, I got to get one more dog story in because once I'm a dad, I'm obligated to talk about my children, right? Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I think about this, like, here's this little mug, the face that only a, only a father could love right now. He's, he's cute as can be. Um, cutest little dog, sweetest little guy, but he has been a headstrong problem, like, his entire life. And it's really his good looks that have got him through, like, everything. It's why he's still around. Um, but, I mean, like, just constantly kind of getting in trouble. He's destroyed more things than we can buy in, like, three years. And he loves to get himself deep into trouble. And, like, um, and one of the biggest problems that this happens with is when we hike, he just would, you know, he'll be good 90% of the time until he sees a rabbit he wants to chase, and then it's just all bets are off. I'll find him, like, half an hour later. And he's smart enough to know the loops that we go on, so he'll just catch up with me later. And I just sit there in a panic attack for the next 15 minutes, like, waiting for him to come back. Um, but this has been, like, you know, the other day, though, we were hiking, and he actually jumped, he followed a rabbit into, like, so deep into a thorn bush that he got stuck, and he just, and I was calling him, and he's looking at me, and he's trying, he's trying, and then he just st- sits and looks at me, <laughs> Finn, come on, man, we, we gotta go, and he tries a little bit again, and he just looks, I'm like, you're literally gonna make me climb into that thorn bush to get you out, because he had gotten so deep in, he couldn't get out, so luckily I was a little bundled up, because I'm tearing myself up, tearing my clothes, ripping myself up to get down to where he is, and then he just kind of looks at me to, like, carry him, so I, like, pick him up, and, like, have to, like, bring him back out of the thorn bush. And then I put him down, and he's like, nothing had happened. He just runs off again. I'm like, you are such a punk. Like, you don't appreciate anything that we do for you. Until recently, when um, he actually, we had, you know, right before the Eagles game uh, two weeks ago, I'm taking him for a quick walk, just trying to get it done real fast. And two other dogs come, and he starts playing with them, and he does what he's not supposed to do. He jumps up, and as he jumps up, he tears his ACL. And, uh, and he goes down like somebody had shot him. I mean, he's just rolling on the ground crying. I don't know what to do. You know, it's just a terrifying moment. But it's changed his demeanor in such a crazy way in the sense that, like, he just looks to me all the time now, like, to do basic things. Like, he, and, and it's been a journey. I've had to, like, you know, taking him out, going to the bathroom is hard for him because it hurts for him to squat. So we just sit outside for half an hour in the freezing cold because I've got nothing better to do. This is really fun, Ben. This is really fun. And, uh, you know, it's going to cost a substantial amount of money to repair his ACL. And every night I carry him up the bed and I sit in there and I try to make him like stop him from licking his leg because it's not healthy. So I'll lay with him at night and keep my hand on him until he stops and falls asleep first. Why do I do these things? This is a sad guy after he tore his ACL. I am mean, just so scared, right? But it just does something in my heart, right? To see my little pup that is looking to me. It just does something in my heart. And, like, and I can't help but, like, carry him and care for him. And, well, yeah, we'll pay whatever. It's not, it's, I know part of me is like, it's just a dog, but it's our dog. It's our dog. You know what I mean? And, like, uh, and this is, and he just, basically, this is his days now. He's just sleeping, waiting to recover. Surgery's coming soon. And then it's going to be this process of him rebuilding and restoring. He's going to be redeemed. He's going to be, like, restored. But it's, uh, it just does something in my heart to be there in the journey with him. And it's, it's special to me 
when he looks to me. I mean, this dog never looked to me for anything. And now he can't get up a step, and he stops, and he just looks with these longing eyes that I pick him up so he doesn't have to do the step by himself. And guys, I got to tell you, like, when God looks at us, there's, it's not like a practical thing to save humanity. It's not a practical thing to buy back the earth. It doesn't make logical sense to restore this mess. It's something that in his heart, he has poured himself into this, and he sees us, and he sees himself in us. He is our father. He deeply loves us, and so he is moved, not by logic, but out of love to redeem what has been broken. And this is the father's heart that he has for his people who have been carried off into captivity and are now living in a foreign land. And they're finally starting to say, you know what? I think this is on us. I think we messed up. And they're starting to look back to their father. And this is what he's been longing for. He says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought, us, brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land and I gave to their fathers. Just a quick moment. The greatest moment in Israel's history was God delivering them from Egypt. It was this, the landmark thing that proved that he was the God. It put him in the position. It started their relationship. And he's saying, the way I'm going to bring you back next, you're not even going to be telling that story anymore because this is going to be so much more powerful how I'm going to bring you back from this. This is the story you will tell your children from time and time again. You will never forget this. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill. He will go out looking for them. And out of the clefts of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I know their sin. I know their brokenness, and I'm coming for them anyways. And I love this, fishers and hunters. Now, fishers, we, we, you know, we won't think of the word fishers. What is a fishers, plural? Well, it's a fishermen is what it really is. How significant is this when he says, I will send out my fishermen to catch my people and bring them back? Who harnesses that language when he comes and walks the earth? Jesus. I'm going to make you fishers of men. My people are still scattered in their hearts, and we need to catch them and bring them back. He went to, uh, he went, to, he didn't say, I want to have you hunt men. That's probably bet for the best, you know, that he didn't use the hunter analogy in the same way. But like he went to a people who understood fishing. They may have missed a lot, but they could get the heart of God and they could get what it means to catch people for the kingdom. He's going to seek them out. For my eyes are on all their ways. I am constantly watching them. Even in this foreign land, I have not forgotten them and I don't cease to see them. The return from exile is coming and it has been promised. And it will come, and we said this earlier in the series, but the book of Jeremiah was a source of hope and exile because as his prophecy of restoration was something that the people would cling to because they knew that as God had been faithful and had been right about the fact that they were going to go into captivity, they trusted with all their hearts that he would be correct about the fact that he would bring them home and restore them, that his heart had not flagged for them. They trusted in this with all their hearts as they were in captivity. And he says, how great the story will be when I come for you. It will be so great that you will stop telling the greatest story that ever happened in the history of your nation because you'll be telling this one. Like, that's a pretty big, he's, he's really selling the sequel. Like, I mean, like, he's like, I, I'm banking on the sequel being even better. You can count on it. It's going to be amazing. But it's not going to happen all at once. 
And he says this from the very beginning. They knew this going into captivity. This is what Jeremiah 29. Now we think of Jeremiah 29, and if you've ever gotten an encouraging note with a Jeremiah verse written in it, it's this one. You haven't gotten other Jeremiah verses, trust me. When people are quoting Jeremiah to you, they're all saying this exact phrase. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's beautiful. It's true. It's powerful. He knows the plans he has for us, plans to give us a hope and a future, but it's also in the context of something else that we're going to look at. In Jeremiah 29, this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, you're going to be there a long time. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into the exile. When you call on me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. Now, is the 70 years God waiting for something? I think he's waiting for their hearts to truly return to him. And it's almost like the first generation had to kind of pass away so that the next generation could truly seek the Lord because they were so hard-hearted that they were not even willing to kind of still hear, even in captivity. But the next generation says, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I'm here. I've not gone anywhere. When you're ready to come back from captivity, I'll bring you back. It's going to be seven years, but I'm, I will move now if you were ready to move now. They were sent into captivity because of their stubborn and hard hearts, but their hearts need to go on a journey. In Jeremiah 17, it says, For the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, and engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. The things that they worship and the center of who they are has been engraved with this hardness of their hearts. It's so deeply entrenched in who they are. But I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. He's saying, I am searching your hearts, and I know how deep it runs, but I'm waiting. I'm waiting for your hearts to return to me. Jeremiah 20, 12, he points out again, the O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. He asks them to circumcise themselves to the Lord, remove the skin of their hearts, the foreskin of their hearts, basically return to what your heart was meant to be. Give it back to me. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Just give me back your heart. Let me wash it clean, and I will restore you. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. This day is coming when they will return with their whole heart. Now, what does like, whole heart mean? It means completely genuine that their hearts are genuinely turned back to the Lord. It means completely committed, that they are fully committed. They're all in with the Lord. There's no plan B here anymore. They want their hearts completely back and completely devoted. Now, I'm not sharing your, the throne of your heart with all these other gods and all these other things that you worship and all the evil that you just keep packing up to do. I need your heart so that I can mold it and I can use it. I need your whole heart. This doesn't work any other way. I need your whole heart. In Jeremiah 3, it says this. 
and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. I'm gonna raise up leaders who have my own heart in them and they will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, here's the thing, even when you're in Babylon, he says, you will prosper there. I'm not gonna forget about you. You will actually thrive. And when you've multiplied and when you've, you will come back. When you've been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall be no more. The ark of the covenant, of, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Let's pause there for one second. What is the ark of the covenant of the Lord? They believe that God's presence fully dwelled in the ark of the covenant in the temple. Now, what's a people who is in exile supposed to believe when the temple has been destroyed? And if you've seen Indiana Jones, no one knows what's happened to the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know. Indy's got it somewhere. It's in a government facility, according to that movie. Um, But we don't know. So what does that mean? God's presence has left us. The temple's been destroyed. Where is his presence? And he's saying, you know, no more shall you say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. The Ark of the Covenant will not even be missed. It shall not be made again. We will not rebuild it. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. And those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Restoration is coming, and I myself will sit on my throne in Jerusalem, and you will all come and be in my presence." You won't need the ark. You won't need the temple. It's just going to be me. And we're going to be together, and that's going to draw all the nations to myself. The fulfillment of the promise. Guys, here's the beautiful thing. He does come, and he brings the people back to Judah. He brings them back, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And if you want to read about that, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, talks about the people who came back and reestablished their nation. But it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. Their hearts still weren't wholehearted, and they dealt with a lot of chaos over the next couple hundred years, and then this lowly kind of carpenter comes on the scene, and God in all of his fullness dwelled in the man, and he didn't need the Ark of the Covenant because they stood in his presence, and they experienced the divine, and Jesus came and lived it out in every single way, fulfilling the promise of Jeremiah, and he drew, here's the kind of things Jesus did. He raised up fishermen, right? And he sent them out and said, go and catch people and bring them to me so they can see who I truly am. He, brought, he raised up shepherds to train his people in how to live. He fulfilled the promises in ways never even dreamed. They never dreamed about being able to conquer sin, to be able to have a new heart. And Mark's going to talk about more about what God does to give us a new heart at the end of this journey. He brings life out of death everywhere he goes. He brings healing out of sickness. He brings hope out of despair. He's just a walking source of life everywhere he goes. He expands the kingdom to the nations. And we see the explosion of the church right after Jesus and that all nations are starting to come to the kingdom and being restored and being redeemed. It wasn't just for the people that were captive in the north. His redemption has no bounds. It's going to the ends of the earth. He goes into the thorn bush, right, to bring us back to himself at great cost to himself. He goes into the thick of our mess, climbs into the the mess that we've created, the way that we couldn't get out, and taking all the tears on himself, he carries us out. And he walks with us through the redemptive process as our hearts are being made whole again. He lives out the greatest story of redemption that the world has ever seen, giving his life for those who did not deserve it. And we live on the other side of this in history. 
We live on the other side of this with this Jesus. So how do we possibly respond to this kind of love? Like, what, what do you even do with that kind of love? Well, I think the most proper response is that we respond with a whole heart. Let's say this person who's gone through the fire for us is worthy of us handing our whole hearts over to him. In Revelation, it kind of talks about what this looks like when Jesus comes to us and, and what it means for those of us who aren't wholehearted. And Revelation says this. This is Jesus talking to the church. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. <laughs> would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, will grant, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He stands at the door and knocks. Here's the crazy thing about this powerful God who's gone to all links to save us. You know, this kind of love demands a wholehearted response, but he won't force his way. It's part of how he loves us. It's part of that he says, my invitation's here. I stand here wanting to give you life. I stand here wanting to give you a new heart. I stand here wanting to redeem you and take you out of the mess that you've made, but I won't force it. You've got to look to me. And he waited for 70 years for his people to say, save me, God, to fully turn their hearts to him. And then he did it. He came through. He will be patient with you. He will stand at the door and knock. But he wants to redeem you and restore you from all of our brokenness. When we commit to Jesus with our whole hearts, we enter into a deeper reality. We enter into a different type of life. And we start to live on the other side of what the promises that he has. And that promise that he kind of gave in Jeremiah, he reminds us again in the end. Our reality climaxes in redemption and restoration. This is the end of the human story is gonna be a redemptive party. He calls it a wedding. And in Revelation, he kind of unpacks what this looks like. And this might sound a lot like Jeremiah because he's reestablishing his promise to us. And catch the language. When he's saying new, he's not saying I'm burning the old thing down. He's saying I will renew. I will make it new. I will build it new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And he will be his God, I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is our eternal destiny. This is the greatest story ever told. And everything else is just an echo of it. Everything else is just an echo of it that we will be restored and redeemed for eternity, made new, made whole, made complete. 
redeemed from the brokenness of this world. Pain, suffering, a thing of the past. The bride is us. He's waiting for the bride to be prepared, to be washed clean, to be made new, to be whole. And when the bride comes in, the wedding is complete because God will live fully with his people in a restored earth. Notice it doesn't say we're all going to Mars together. He's restoring this world. He's restoring. Heaven will be redeemed and restored in every way. New heaven, new earth. The old order of things will pass away and we will live in the newness. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the promise of the kingdom. And just like the people of Jeremiah who said, look, we know he was faithful with the past. He was right about that captivity. Maybe he'll be right about the redemption. And he did. He came for his people. He brought them back. He rebuilt Jerusalem. And we stand on this point, and he sent his son to be his presence on earth, and he died on a cross for us. And as we stand at this point in time saying, well, he was right about all that, we can hope with certainty that he will be right about where our destiny lies, that he is redeeming all things because he loves to redeem his creation. He wants to see us reach the potential that we were built for. So what is your response to that kind of love? Is it wholehearted? What are you holding back from Jesus? This is a morning where I feel like we should be challenged to say, God, I want you to have my whole heart. You are the one worthy of being trusted with it. What needs to be redeemed and restored in your life? Here's the beautiful thing about God. We don't come to him with what we've gotten right. It's when we're stuck in the thorn bush looking longingly to be saved that his heart is moved to come save us. It's all we have to do is say, yeah, I'll open the door. That's all we have to do. That's the work we do It's just cry out, God, save me. He'll come through whatever's barriers that are there to save us. And redemption is our, is our destiny. He'll do the work. He'll give, he, and in the end of this, he'll have a new heart. And next week, Mark's going to talk about how do we live out of a new heart. Because that's the reality that we live in when we submit our hearts to the Lord. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Father God, if there is anyone out there who's just realizing that they've never fully given their hearts to you, Father, I pray that you would be moving right now. And then if that's you this morning, there's no trick to it. There's no magic things they say. There's no science. All it is is saying, Lord, I want to give you my heart. I want to open the door. Lord, I need you to come in and make me new. I believe that you are able to save me, and I believe that you want to save me. Just ask him, and he will. Lord, for all of us, we know that we just kind of give our heart in pieces so often. And Lord, I don't want to be someone who gives you part of my heart. Lord, I want you to have my whole heart. You're the one who's trustworthy with it. Lord, I have proven time and time again that I am imperfect at kind of running my own life. Lord, I submit it to you, and I ask that we would all just submit our hearts to you, to lay it out before you. Lord, take our whole hearts. Redeem us. Bring us back from where we've been lost. Father, I thank you so much that you love us in that way. And Lord, I just, I just pray that you would continue to restore us, continue to walk with us as we mend and heal and learn to live with a new heart. Father God, I just pray that if there's anyone out here this morning who, who just accepted you into their lives, Lord, I, I would just urge, if you are out there, I would urge you to come and just talk to someone. Talk to the person who brought you. Let them know that this is going on. 
Have people walk with you. We are never meant to go through this life alone. And in his redemption, he is gracious enough with us to have us walk through this as a community, as a family. Lord God, thank you for your precious gift. In Jesus' name, amen.